0: Well, hello, Melanie.
1: Oh, there you are. Hello. Yeah,
0: it's like magic, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you're you're you sound a little bit um, farther away than you did when we were on the phone, but I can certainly hear you.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of it's not as high a quality as you can get, I don't think, and and I, I may be having to look for another app. I'm not sure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Garland Pepper Show. Today, my guest is Melanie. What is your last name, Melanie? Zermer. Z-e-r-m-e-r. Melanie Zermer. Melanie Zermer and I have been kind of bumping into each other at different events here and there. Uh, typically, it's probably a fundraiser or um, a, a concert. Um, Melanie is an active uh, member of the Salem community, um, working to better lives there um, throughout the area. And she works hard and um, her name came up from several people as somebody that would be interesting to have on the show. And so what's what's really fun about this is you and I together get to learn more about Melanie cuz really like I said it's only been brief encounters and always joyous. Thank you. Yeah, well thank you. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Yeah, and I think we've met each other through a lot of shows. Yes. A lot of music shows. That's how I remember meeting you.
0: Mhm. Yeah, so you follow uh, my brother's band. Yep. And uh and then Karen's band. Right. Yeah. Well, they're both everybody else's bands, too. That's why they're right. bands. But you, you pick out a person in the band. Yeah.
1: Right. And awesome. I also like Vortex Remover. So I say Vortex Remover, City of Pieces, and uh, the Women Punk Band are my favorites.
0: Yeah. Hot Sheets.
1: Hot Sheets. Thank you. I yeah, Hot heard Sheets them for a while, is awesome. So I kind of forgot their name.
0: No, they did a little COVID uh, distance jam a while ago in a garage. They did a song. And I cool. just saw it on the, on the interwebs.
1: Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah.
0: Mm. I'm just having a cup of coffee. I hope that sound doesn't, uh, um, uh, make you want to get a cup of coffee or maybe um, it does. No, yeah. I, I
1: think I can manage <laughs> I've I've had my coffee filled for the morning. Thank you.
0: I just put uh MCT oil in my coffee now. What is it? Uh, my, uh. Medium chain triglycerides. Uh, it's oh. uh, basically uh, an extract of coconut, very light light oil, and mm. it's um, full of a a type of protein, a triglyceride that um, it's medium chain. So it's not like uh, your, you know, your what do they call those? Uh, I don't different... know. Anyway, it's it's supposed to be super bio viable. Like the body really loves it. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's all I okay. need to know yeah it's a it's a uh beneficial fat
1: oh okay I like beneficial fat
0: I do too <laughs> um, as a matter of fact that's kind of my diet now um i've I've lost like twenty pounds since wow. um maybe more maybe twenty five since january
1: oh good for you
0: yeah and it's just really cutting out white foods legumes cheese milk mm-hmm so I I eat vegetables and meat and uh fruits and nuts and All eggs. Right.
1: All right. Well, it's not very good.
0: And I feel better. I mean, I was pre-diabetic, so it was kind of scary.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you had to take action.
0: Mhm. Yeah, my brothers kind of full on at this point, my other brother.
1: Uh-huh. And Your that's... other brother? Yeah, there we about have David.
0: Yeah, we have a middle brother, Marlon.
1: Oh, oh okay.
0: Mhm. The Jackson 5 uh, lent them out to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) They had too many. They wanted to be, you know, after Latoya. They were just like, yeah, we'll give Marlon away. (laughs) No, Marlon's Marlon's a good guy. Uh, He's he's one of these people that um, he's wired tight, you know, always has been. Just an edgy type, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm chihuahua juice you know chihuahua energy Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) and it's just been a it's been a struggle for him to Mm. kind of keep himself in line his whole life and and he's he's had some trials and tribulations but he's really grown from all of his trials and he's become quite a quite a good man
1: Mm. well very good
0: Mm -hmm. so Zermer.
1: Yes. That is an interesting spelling, mm-hmm. Z-E-R-M-R-R. Oh, actually, that's a, a misspelling. My name okay. is spelled Z-E-R-M-E-R, Zermer. And okay. it was uh, actually changed because when my father's father came from Europe uh, in the late 1800s, the last name was actually pronounced Zermer, which is an umlaut U, And uh, once people got here in the United States from Europe, they really wanted to shed that foreign, um, uh, being foreign, because they got discriminated against if they were foreigners. Mm -hmm. And so all the people who came from my grandfather's background, they took that name and they changed it. And everybody had spelled it just a little differently. So some people who are related to me, their last name is Ziermer. Z E R Z E E R M E R. So I have never met another person with the last name of Zermer except for a very close group of cousins. Okay, so there may be other people out there related to me on my phone. It's that side. Ellis
0: Island effect, isn't it?
1: Yes, and then you know the record keeping wasn't so good so. All kinds of things got transposed differently, so there might be other people related to me right here in the mid valley, but I don't know who they are.
2: Yeah,
0: so your family moved straight out to Oregon actually, when they came to America.
1: Actually, no, but so many people did. Um, my I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in mm-hmm. in a town north of Chicago called North Chicago, and that's where mm-hmm. the Great Lakes Naval Training Base is, the second largest. Okay naval training base in our country
0: it's pretty amazing yeah it's pretty pretty massive structure right it
1: was nice to uh grow up on a lake although we had a it was like about three miles away but we did have that opportunity to go to the beach in the summertime until the 70s when the water was so polluted we could not but still you could see the water and it was big yeah I remember
0: there being trash in all waterways when I was growing up because I don't know, there was this, this belief that the water would take it away or something. Hey, yeah. I just remember in the seventies, people didn't like late sixties, early seventies, people didn't really care. It was kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. There was trash all over the highways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then we had that big campaign by Lady Bird Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, I remember there was a commercial on, on television when I was a little girl and the main character was Susie Spotless. And she would tell us to pick up our trash. And that was kind of the beginning of the environmental movement, in my mind. Yeah. And
0: then the Italian guy that was the Native American guy with the tear?
1: Oh, I don't know. That sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know that one as well.
0: Oh, no. he's It's basically, so it's an Italian the story is in the end, it, it's an Italian guy playing, you know, it's Hollywood right. playing a Native American right.
1: because they couldn't find a real Native American.
0: No, they're really hard <laughs> to find. And, you know, they don't look Native American. They they look different than yeah. the Native American, <laughs> you know, that they wanted the
1: Hollywood like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We wanted a Hollywood Native American, not a real Native uh-huh. American. And and so but he would he was basically you'd see him kind of seeing the trash everywhere. Yeah. And then at the very end, they just had a tear coming down his face. Right. And it was very powerful. And it, it, it was an iconic thing. And it actually worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember in school, we were, there was like these apocalyptic films that were coming out about the environment. There'll be days when everybody will have to buy their water in bottles. And I'm like, ah, huh, <laughs> no. And then, <laughs> and then, and then was, last
1: summer in Salem, <laughs> cyanotoxins yeah. hit
0: right and everybody has to buy their water right and and people will have to oh the phone booths were now oxygen stops so you could go to an oxygen you can get it doesn't matter how polluted it is outside you can always stop in at the phone booth and get some fresh oxygen (laughs) that's handy (laughs) (laughs) oh but you know and then nixon nixon actually did sign the epa Mm -hmm. and um that really changed a lot of things. It, I remember there was a lot of pushback on it. And then, but like Mother Jones had come out at that point and they were doing like, you know, l- sustainability, the commune people were trying to do like, you know, alternative power and things like that. And it started moving that direction, but everything was still primitive.
1: Yeah, primitive.
0: Yeah, yeah, the old... You know, photovoltaic systems were really not very good. You know, the people were trying to still out alcohol to mix with gas because of the gas crisis.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. I remember that. That was like in the that was Jimmy Carter days. I remember uh, I think Mm -hmm. I was home from college and I remember taking a picture of all the cars lined up on the two gas stations that were right next to my house. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Even an odd number gas right. yeah, days, those are odd times. if your license plate, what I think it started with a even or odd yeah. number, you you could go on a Tuesday if it was if your if your license plate was at two, right. started with mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You, uh, born up there. How long, how long did you live in?
1: Chicago Land
0: In Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Well, Were you in Illinois or in Wisconsin or kind of right next Illinois. to Wisconsin? Mm-hmm.
1: It was in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I grew up in North Chicago and I went to, and then I lived, I did my, um, higher education in Illinois, both Illinois state university and normal Illinois, and then I finished up both my bachelor and master's degree in Southern Illinois University in Carbondale.
0: So you, pretty much most of your life was in Illinois. Um,
1: well, I wouldn't say most of my life, Gary. Uh, I left so. Illinois probably when I was in my early 20s and I'm in my early 60s now. So I've actually spent most mm. of my life here in Oregon. So a third yeah. of your life there
0: and two thirds here. Yeah. So what brought you out to Oregon? Well,
1: at the time, I was working at the – after I got my um, my master's degree in, in criminal justice, I got a job at the Illinois legislature. And so that was my foray into um, legislative work. And I worked there for a couple of years, but I really didn't like living in Springfield, Illinois. There wasn't a lot going on there outside of the legislative work that I was doing, which I really enjoyed, by the way. And I visited my sister who lived in Portland at the time. And I said, I want to live here. And I was walking around Portland as she was at work. And I found myself just walking into the city of Portland building, not knowing why. I remember even having this thought in my head, where are you going? I walk in the door and I just go down these stairs and I find myself in this little office with all of these um, job opening notices on a bulletin board, and a woman at the desk says, "Can I help you?" It's like uh, I I don't know, and I just turned and looked at all of these job openings, and there were jobs for sanitation engineers and secretaries and this and that, and all the way at the end of the board there was this pink flyer, and they were looking for a legislative researcher, and I went, oh. I can do that. I do that in Illinois. I could do that in Oregon. And so sure. I applied for the job. And the um, the guy who would have hired me, he was out of town. Because I called the legislative office and said, I'd like to make an appointment to talk with Ken Elverum. He's hiring this job position. And she said, oh, he's in Nevada right now. He'll be back on Friday. And I made a point to... Set up an interview with him on Friday, two days before I was going back to Illinois, because I had just read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And it has to do with how to find the work you love. And one of the things they said is if you apply for a job, make sure you have make sure you talk to the person who has the power to hire you. Don't just drop off your resume. I remembered that. So I was able to get. Um an interview with him before I left. My brother-in-law drove me down for that and I chatted it up with Ken and we had a great conversation. And then I went back to Illinois and they um, did a telephone interview with me. Uh, They had a number of other people applying for that position, but they hired me after a phone interview. And then within a matter of weeks, I was living in Oregon. So from the time I visited my sister in Late October or early October until before Christmas. I mean, that's how short of a span of time it was to get me out here. Was a jump? Yeah, it was a great jump, and I never looked back. Did you have? Did you have to move a lot of stuff? Uh, not too much. I mean, I was just barely out of graduate school and my first professional job, so yeah, not a lot of stuff. Yeah, it was easy. Imagine
0: moving uh, now. Uh. Yeah. 40 years for uh, this stuff.
1: And I'm a, <laughs> I'm a person that like t- tries to keep things neat and clean and tidy but still. Stuff yeah. gathers. Yeah. And we t- we tend to think we need so much. Yeah. Yeah, but then I worked... We need, we need a lot Yeah, I lot worked for less. the legislature here in Oregon for nine years and it was a fabulous experience.
0: So doing what clerky? Well, or? let's
1: see. They, um, as the, the legislator has these different committees that study issues that, uh, that work on specific bills. And so I managed, uh, one of the committees and the committee, whatever, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the committees would change or they'd have different names and whatnot, but all the committees that I staffed had to do with human services. Yeah. The mm-hmm. department of human services was primarily the people that I saw a lot over the years.
0: Always under, always,
1: always, Mm -hmm.
0: always. Yeah. I've, I've talked to people in the foster care system, you know, and they're always looking for Mm -hmm. people. Um, And
1: and finding good people, finding good people is the hard thing. Sometimes they attract people who shouldn't be foster parents. It's a hard job.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, is there even some sort of, isn't there, is there some sort of battery of tests you can give a potential, a potential, you know, yeah I don't know. to kind of see where they come from and what their thinking know what is. The training is. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot. Yeah. We don't know.
0: So you worked out. Uh, there is a lot. We don't know. And there's I, I I interviewed a lady last night who works with, with health and human services and getting people uh, back up and going in their lives. Um, whether they need just the Some people just need palliative care. I mean, yeah, this person, they need food stamps and a place to live because there's really they're not marketable Mm -hmm. in society. You know, she she gets to make those decisions or, you know, do some testing on this person, find out, well, they've got skills in this area. Maybe we can find them a thing here. You know, so she's really trying to help people Mm -hmm. get back on their feet. And it's and it's tough. Our case Mm -hmm. caseloads are high.
1: And there's not a lot of resources to go around. No.
0: No. So what part of the uh, human services were you mainly involved with?
1: Um, mainly it was policy, like legislative policy. I didn't serve on the budget committee. So any kind of legislation that, that dealt with uh, either child abuse or senior and disabled services or health care. So I was around when John Kitzhaber was president of the Senate and uh, orchestrated mm-hmm. what was then called the Oregon Health Plan. And that was an interesting mm-hmm. process. Um, They were trying to get health care to more and more people. And it was a process where you had to go to the federal government and get waivers. And through that process, Oregon, there's a precedent set where the federal government could give a state waivers to do experiments, policy experiments. And that is happening again. There's a movement called Health Care for All. And they've been a part of making sure some legislative happen, legislation happened in 2019 that's creating a task force to once again, look at bringing us look at Oregon and bringing universal health care to Oregon, which will again require these federal waivers. And all of that really came out of the Oregon Health plan that was started by Dr. Kitzhaber so many years ago.
0: It was helpful to have a doctor. Yeah, I think at home
1: so. <laughs> he had some street cred.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and he'd been involved in the process enough to really kind of understand mm-hmm. a lot of it, mm-hmm. which I think was helpful. That had to be just a monumental. It was.
1: Past. I mean, but there were some great people I remember working with. Oh, I wish I could remember their names now. I can see their faces. But people that were working really hard and that were really behind him at the at the department level, you know, the Department of Human Resource level, Um, because it was one thing getting the legislation legislation passed. It was another thing getting it operational. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where the state people had to really step up. And I think they did a great job from what I could remember.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with me. I mean, my wife has actually health care, so we could Mm, we could be mm -hmm, all right mm -hmm. um, that way. Um, But I was double covered, Mm -hmm. so that was yes, it's
1: it's good to be double covered. And what Oregon health care is all Mm -hmm. about is not necessarily having health insurance, just having access to health care without the middle person, without the bureaucracy, or at least the current, at least the current. Bureaucracy, So we'll see what happens. That uh, task force is going to start meeting in the fall. Uh, they, got a, they were halted due to COVID. Um, but it's, I think it's uh, an important thing to watch. I mean, I think one of the things we have really realized during the COVID crisis is how many, I, I, we've always known about the cracks in the social uh, system. And I think the COVID crisis has just made the cracks more visible and wider. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's a pressure cooker. I mean, you could have predicted a lot of this if if you were just really watching.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No big surprise.
0: Yeah. No, it's sad um, that it had to get to this, because there there are people out there. You know, Nick Hanauer, up in Seattle, um, he's got a, a podcast called Pitchfork Economics. And they he's a billionaire and he's he kind of got together with his buddies and he's like, hey, we can't keep, you know, making all the laws go our way. Um, People are going to people are going to rise up. And he started this podcast about two two -hmm. years ago. Um, And, you know, that's where the pitchfork comes in. And he's so he's been talking about this for a while. We really need to restructure. He was behind the. $15 Fifteen dollar an hour initiative in Seattle. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm back.
0: Hello, Melanie, ladies and gentlemen. We were uh, sadly interrupted due to some sort of telephone issues. Um, we are back together with Melanie Zermer. Melanie, can you hear me? Are you kidding me?
1: Yes, quite oh. loud. Oh, good, was good, good. Last time. <laughs> okay. Okay,
0: good, good. <laughs> uh, so we're back. We were, we were talking.
1: Like you're underwater.
0: Oh, I do. Well, we we're talking about healthcare, and um, what else were we talking about? Uh, legislation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, where were we?
1: Yeah, I don't know. The Maybe exact we should just, point.
0: We should just, just start something new.
1: Yeah, start something new. What yeah. else do you want to know? that uh, me be another question that'll get me started.
0: Yeah, who's your favorite Beetle?
1: Oh, that's interesting. I don't really have a favorite beetle, but I did have a favorite monkey. I had a favorite monkey. Oh, you did? And it was Mickey Hartman. Mm. Yeah.
0: Uh, I you remember like...
1: watching the monkeys when I was a kid. They had a TV Mickey show. Mickey,
0: was it Nolan or Mickey Hartman? Mickey Hartman.
1: Uh, Mickey Hartman. I think there's a Peter Torque, a Mike Nesbitt,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh Davy Jones, and... Mickey Jones. It was Mickey Jones.
0: Mickey Jones, and yeah. he had he had kind of the 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 wide affable smile, kind of the broader face. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. mm mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. He was the. He had the voice. Wasn't he the singer?
1: I think they all sung at various points.
0: Yeah, they did. They were kind of a TV creation, but they yeah. were. But they actually were good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they actually did. Although I understand, I don't know if you ever saw this movie. um, It was about studio musicians in L.A., Wrecking Crew. I learned a lot by watching that movie about how um, albums that were created in the 60s, your favorite band, they were not Mm -hmm. actually playing the instruments. And um, the Monkees were coming to record their album. And Peter Tork was just, he was infuriated that he wasn't going to play the guitar on his own album. And so that's what I remember about Peter Tork from The Monkees. Well, I would be. I mean, it's Yeah, it's, I know. It's you. I was, but, I mean, I was just shocked. It just within the last few years I saw that movie, and I, went, I had no idea those people didn't play their own instruments on the albums. I was wow. crushed.
0: And, you know, Millie Vanilli, those guys. Um,
1: oh, God, yeah, yeah, the, the lip syncers.
0: Yeah, yeah, they didn't want to do the lip-sync, just like Peter Tork, right? Ah, and
1: but then they it, got crap for it.
0: Yeah, it was their agent.
1: Huh.
0: Their agent told them to do it, and and that they wouldn't be signed or whatever. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, yeah, poor poor guys. They they just got lambasted forever. Yeah, that
1: wasn't fair. I didn't realize that they didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't remember hearing that part of the story in the media.
0: Well, you don't hear all the stories, all the story in the media, right. do you?
1: Right, you really get, don't. You get what yeah. they want
0: you to hear. That's pretty mm-hmm. much it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do what you're told, told to do. So I'm standing by the window now so I can maintain bars ah, on good. my phone. Yeah. Good. So legislative, you've rubbed shoulders with, jeez, all the power players in the, in the state of
2: Oregon, haven't you? Uh,
1: I don't know about rubbing shoulders, but certainly um... – Crossed there we've crossed paths, let's say, yeah, that. yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Peter Courtney's been there forever,
1: yeah, but the funny thing is, is he wasn't when I was a legis- when I was a legislative staffer he, he 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 yeah he he was a he was a legislator, and then I think maybe a city councilor, and then came back to the legislature after I left, I think he was waiting for me to leave before he'd run again <laughs>
0: Did you give him a hard time? Did you make it I, challenging?
1: I guess so. I guess so. I just remember all of his yard signs had a picture of a rabbit on a skateboard or uh, with roller skates or something. Kind of mm-hmm. like the Energizer Bunny kind of a guy, which he is. He's he's amazing that he's still operating.
0: It really is. Yeah, you're, you're not afraid to ask the hard questions. And, and sometimes people don't want to hear that.
1: Um. I don't, you know, that's a good question. I, I feel like I wish I knew what the hard questions were sometimes. Because in my current role as a community journalist, I came into it not really having a journalism background. So I, I work or I'm a volunteer at KMUZ Community Radio um, here in the Mid Willamette Valley. And I just took on the role of uh, becoming a community journalist because I thought it was important. And everything I learned about how to do it, I either learned from Dave Hammock or I made it up. so sometimes I wish I knew what the hard questions were because I put myself in situations where I'm interviewing someone on a topic I really don't know anything about which is which is really difficult to do
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: It's kind of scary, so like recently i just I've been doing a series of interviews about after or during covid like how has different industries or businesses been affected by covid and mm-hmm. one of the businesses i talked to which i knew nothing about was i talked to alex case at Su- capital subaru because like why not just you know interview sure. someone you know nothing about and i had to do some quick background research on what's been going on with the car industry and so i mean it was a very pleasant interview Um, And he could have told me anything and I wouldn't have known one way or the other if it was truthful or not. But I I trusted his judgment and I just hope listeners um, take a listen and they can make their own judgment. I try to when interviewing people, I try to let the listener make a decision about the, the whole topic after it's all over. I try not to do gotcha interviews, and I try mm-hmm. not to do interviews that leads the listener to a particular point of view. But after they're done listening, letting them ruminate on it and making up their own minds about an issue.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, just just the facts, ma'am.
1: Just present yeah. it. That's what I try to there. do.
0: It's yeah, really I mean, hard. It's really hard not to have an angle.
1: It is. Um, and it's a and it's lot. Your guests
0: will have an angle. Yeah. And,
1: yeah it's up to them to give their angle, and it's a lie for me to say that I am not biased in any way. everybody has a bias every I mean just the stories I choose to air or follow up on shows my bias right exactly and with the with the uh, recent um uh, the the march <coughs> excuse me the uh March for Floyd rallies that have been going on, so I covered the one last Saturday. And then I covered a city council meeting where they talked about what's been going on with the police in Salem. And I want to make sure that I provide both points of view. So yeah. there were counselors who were really ragging on the police, not really ragging on the police. They were just pointing out that we need to do things differently. But then there were other counselors who said, you know, the the police are doing the best they can with what we've got. We have a great history with the NAACP in our community. So I wanted to make sure that I had both sides of the argument, so to speak, on that piece that I did. So that's my I feel like that's my job now as a community journalist is to try to just provide as many points of view that I have access to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's important to, to kind of, because it has to be on the audience to figure it out. I mean, yeah. if you're, if you're trying to do the, and like you say that you're always going to have a bias, but if you're trying to do the most unbiased, it should leave the listener with, with a decision.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: How do I how do I feel about this? What do I think about this? Is there an action for me to take regarding this? Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Is there an action for me? to Do I have a point of view? And then if Mm -hmm. I do, what do I want to do about it, if anything? That's what I'm hoping that KMUZ does for the community is just provide information for them to help them make their own decision.
0: You worked really hard on that. You and several others really worked hard on creating that radio station. Mm,
1: And still and definitely still are. I I remember when we Karen Holman was the one who whose idea it was to bring a community radio station to the Salem area because she had lived in the Bay Area where that was part of her life and couldn't believe that it didn't happen here. So, yeah, she worked Mm -hmm. really hard to get us the license And then she was part of the group of people that worked really hard to get us on the air. And now that we're on the air, what I realize is the hardest part wasn't getting us on the air. It's the day-to-day keeping us on the air. It's like having a young child that needs 24-7 attention. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And during COVID, it's been especially hard Because we're not doing live programs in the studio anymore, and only a handful of us can be in the studio, and we're trying to keep the whole radio station going, asking people to uh, provide their programs remotely, or at least send in your playlist that we can, you know, schedule in during the time your show normally would be, and yeah, it's been really hard, trying to learn new technology, new ways of doing interviews with people that I can get on the air. Right. Yeah, so it's it's been really, really hard right now. Um, but very, so how important, many, very important. How
0: many hours of programming a day?
1: Um, so we're, basically, we're on the air from 6 a.m. to midnight, and we have a lot of original program content. It's hard to really talk about that now because some people have just totally gone away and they're not doing anything they're not doing their shows remotely nor are they sending in playlists um, but when we were at full capacity we, were, we probably had 80 originals no we have 80, about 80 people working in the studio I can't I, I wow. don't yeah about 80 people were coming in and out of the studio per week and now it's just about five of us okay
0: so that's been really tough. Mike was talking about that. He does an interview show on huh. Oh, Mike
1: yeah, Hickman. yeah. I call him Mick. That's funny. And
0: yeah. Mick, mm-hmm. Mickey. <laughs> I call him Mick. Uh, and yeah, I, I knew him first as Mike from work. Right. Um, but I also knew his grandfather, Mickey, before I knew him.
1: Ah. Yeah. yeah. I think he's and from the Jefferson area. Is that right?
0: He is. Yeah. He's a Jefferson mm-hmm. kid.
1: Yeah.
0: Yep. He has a great Guns show. and floating
1: great show i mean northwest northwest notes that's one of the in my mind one of the greatest shows because he showcases people who are producing music right here in the mid willamette valley and the whole northwest but he always yeah. incur- he always includes people right here in the salem area and i think that's important that's why we have a community radio station so i really appreciate his efforts he's been doing it for years
0: yeah yeah I- I think he's close to a thousand shows. Eight hundred I think Whoa. he said something like that.
1: Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot of shows. And now he's been doing and, interviews with uh musicians about what it's like not to be able to perform. So he's really doing the, he's really making the mission. He's really meeting our mission. He's
0: going crazy. He is such a live music fanatic. Oh yeah. It it, it feeds his soul at a level that he didn't recognize yes. until yes after when this happened and he's just like it's it's almost a pain oh. he he just has to have that communion with yeah you know emerging sounds and music yeah. and, and people playing their hearts out
1: yeah no I get it I mean that's where I would see him the most was that we'd always see each other at live shows so yeah that's mm-hmm. really been painful I know we've been trying to promote some of the digital shows it's just I mean as lovely as it is it's it's and it's a good stopgap measure but the camaraderie mm-hmm. and the live sound and everybody around you it's just so energizing and it is uh, it is really a shame that we're missing that right now
0: mhm so eventually i imagine i'll be putting together a studio all right yeah but, you know, this this thing has to start paying for itself before I can really do much. Yeah. And that's a really big number. Uh, right now, my goal is 10,000 uh, downloads or, or listens or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and and at that point, I might have 1,000 listeners. Uh-huh. That'd be great. 800 to 1,000 listeners. And from there, then you can start, you know, talking to advertisers. Mm-hmm. But until then, it's just a building process. And yep. it's, it's going to take a while. And like you're saying with the radio station, it really is like maintaining a baby. I thought I would just, you know, do this. And this is part of it. You know, it is a scheduled part of my day that takes time and is always the most joyous part of it. But then I have to go back and write, you know, some copy up and Mm -hmm. and do some ads. And I'm I'm not real good at either of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. Social media, this stuff, you know, put it out on Facebook and put it out on my Uh, tweets and you know just wherever else i can maybe message somebody who i think would be interested in the show
2: Mm -hmm. yep it's a lot of work
1: i I know the fun part there's the fun part and then there's all the other parts that aren't fun that have to be done in order to make the fun part happen i get that radio is the same way
0: yeah yeah you know, and then the technical issues I've been having throughout have not been <laughs> right?
1: helpful. Oh yeah, <laughs> I get that too.
0: <laughs> Radio is a much more precise art than podcasting. I think.
1: Um, I don't, I'm not sure what you mean by that. What do you mean by that? A precise art?
0: Well, you have to. There's first off, you have to follow FCC rules oh, yeah. and do station identification right, on a regular right. basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys don't do advertising, but you do fundraising. Right,
1: Under- we do have underwriting um, and sponsors. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. But the timing thing: a show is this many minutes. Oh, yeah. And you know, you you format through uh, through that show. Right. So it's just a little more tightly wrapped mm-hmm. than a pod than my podcast, mm-hmm. was There are some pretty tight wrapped podcasts out yeah. there. You know, they'll do one yeah. a month, but it's you know pristine, Mm -hmm. a lot of sound effects Mm -hmm. and stuff going here and there. Yeah,
1: Yep. That comes with lots of time and practice and learning new skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're learning a lot of new skills doing this podcast project.
0: Yeah. It's been really fun. Um, I, I enjoy learning. So, you know, it's my nature to jump in. I don't, I, I don't learn correctly. Typically I do more of a jump in fumble a ready, shoot, game yep. yeah, yeah. kind of reality. Yeah,
1: that's my style, too.
0: Yeah. I, I find you just get more work done that way. And then if you do, do that with a Kaizen approach, you know, continuous improvement, it will just continue to get better. I mean, like when you listen to my first shows, I'm working on identity. I'm working on all kinds of things and, and just trying to create a show. And I've kind of dropped some of that, you know, and had more of a Southern feel to it because I do like the storyteller voice. Uh, you know, I've always appreciated the slowing down and storytelling style of kind of your your Southern storyteller. Mm-hmm. And but I kind of dropped that a bit because it's it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do say y'all I'm I'm a y'all person, but I think y'all is is where. Um, our our transgender community should have went instead oh. of they. <laughs> it, it, That's still a plural. I do. I just. It, yeah, yeah, y'all is a plural, but it's it's been a known plural for a singular uh, for years. Because gotcha. mm-hmm. um, a plural y'all is mm-hmm. all y'all. Um, and I I just really think that they is a other concept, mm. and I I really feel like. You know, uh, my brothers and sisters, and and others out there who got together on the council and decided that they was the pronoun they wanted mm. to use, really missed an opportunity to steal y'all from the south, just like gay stole gay from hmm. everybody, and gave and gave it a new place and and yeah, redefined it. I don't it. know how they. Yeah, I think y'all is more inclusive hmm. than they. I just I, and they know, didn't
1: ask you, Gary. They didn't. They didn't come and they ask. Should have Gary asked me, Fox.
0: My opinion is
1: shit to
0: them. My opinion is shit to them because, you know, I'm a cisgendered male, so I, I really don't have an opinion. I, I mean, I I, I I shouldn't have an opinion. I don't know. I, I think it's just that you know, my opinion doesn't matter. I, I just I just feel like you know branding matters, and and they is other. It, it has an otherness to it, which is, I think, what you want to try to get away from.
1: Yeah, you want something more inclusive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all I know is that they're trying to get away from uh, pronouns that signified female and male. That's all I know about that.
0: Yeah. Good luck in the Latin communities. Mm. Right. He <laughs> had mm-hmm. to change the whole language. Well, even
1: in the, in the German language, even nouns are either female or male. Yeah, it's true. That's der Tisch, the table. Actually, I think the table is female. I don't
0: der, know. Der D and Die. I don't know. Is it Der D and Die?
1: Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Der Death. I can't remember. I took German in high school. It was kind of a language, a Germanic style language is what I heard a lot in my community growing up. But it, it, they weren't Germans. They were Slovenians. They were Slavs. But there was a Germanic sound to the mm. language. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I've, I've always thought that Germans, the German language is kind mm-hmm. of got a role. I don't think it's a very pretty language, um, but it, it language affects the way people do things and how people mm-hmm. talk. And, and they are very much uh, kind of focused people
2: mm.
0: as, as a culture. I mean, you can you know, generally, I mean, as a culture, you'd have to say, Uh, But, I mean, the quality of the work that 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 happens and you have to wonder how language impacts, you know, those types of things. I always do. I always wonder how language impacts.
1: Yeah, yeah, it impacts them a lot. Like right now, um, we're hearing defund the police, which doesn't mean Mm -hmm. don't have a police force. It means something completely different, which I'm still trying to figure out. But my fear is that
0: bad branding again.
1: Is going to scare people. And I think what defund police means means defund the militarization of police. Uh, our police have been correct. All kinds of all kinds of military style weapons in their toolboxes. And I think that's what we're talking about. But by just simply saying defund the police, yeah. that's going to scare people who don't understand. They're going to think, "Oh, no police, we're going to have total chaos." And so, yeah, language. Yeah, matters.
0: It's, that, it's illogical, right? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so branding is important, and that was that's not a good brand, um, and nobody's who who you're trying to convince is going to look deeper to understand. What yeah. And means. I
1: need to, They're I just need to see explore defund that. the
0: police. And that sounds stupid. Yeah, I'm no, done. I
1: want to, as a community journalist, I want to explore that because I am afraid that, that it could be misinterpreted by people who would normally support the concept. So, but that is an example of how language yes. matters.
0: Yeah. I, I, there needs to be some definite reforms, Um, I've had the experience with Salem cop where this guy had such amazing communication Mm -hmm. skills, you know, this, this other person is just freaking out and he is doing some active listening and, and, and he just Mm -hmm. did an amazing job. You know, he, he didn't let his emotions get in play. He continued to, you know, look the person in the eye and, although the person was not calming down, got the person to do mm-hmm. what he needed them to do.
1: Without beating him up, without cuffing him.
0: Without beating him up, without any, yeah, mm-hmm. without any aggressive mm-hmm. behavior. And and even a raising of the a, of a mm-hmm. tone and voice.
1: Yeah. Right? It's a certain skill set. And a very important skill set.
0: Well, it's a skill set that needs, yeah, it's a skill set, active listening. And uh, there was a police officer some years ago, who used to go around talk about verbal judo. Mm-hmm and that's really what you have mm-hmm. to do is is kind of take people's words and and move them with their own mm-hmm. ideas yeah. in in a sense yeah <laughs> and then you know i've seen just horrible cops it's but the training has to mm-hmm. be better the training just has to be better i think less focus on militarization and a lot more focus on community mm-hmm. engagement yeah would, would yeah, go so I want to learn way.
1: more about what does that mean community policing um I don't really know what that means mm-hmm. so that'll be my next and that's a cool that's one of the cool things about uh being a volunteer at KMUZ and producing uh public affairs content is my ability to mm-hmm. and, uh resolve my own curiosity I have some sort of a street cred to be able to call up the chief of police and ask him to answer questions because of my role at the community radio station and uh, police chief Moore, He, I mean, we have a good relationship. We know each other from, you know, just my doing my thing for as many years as I have and him doing his thing. And so I like the idea that I can pick and choose a topic that I'm interested in and explore it and then share it with the greater community. That's one of my greatest, um, yeah. my happiest moments when, I, when I'm done producing a story that I'm really proud of. Yeah, kind of like it feels what you're good, doing right? With your podcast.
0: Yeah, last night I had such, a, such an amazing interview. This young lady um, watched her grow up, you know, from the age of four on. And now she's a woman and she has her own two kids and she's doing a career in, in health and human services. Um, they, her family went through some deep tragedy and it was just mm. such a beautiful show. Um, the, the connection and the depth and every single show that I have when I'm done with them, you know, other than the audio challenges,
2: mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that was mm-hmm. a good show.
0: It feels good. Yep. So are you retired now from legislative stuff? And oh, just doing oh like yeah. I, I actually work, left or? the
1: legislature in 2000, in 1995. I've been a massage therapist for the last 20-some oh, okay. years. And it's funny that you mentioned retirement because last fall I had decided I would retire at the end of this coming summer, end of August 2020. So when COVID hit and, and all this is going on, I'm not practicing massage, obviously. I was wondering, well, wow, that was sure. abrupt. I've seen most, uh, most of my clients at this point have been with me for 20 years or more, right? I mean, I've really narrowed my practice down to about 15 people. Most of them have been coming to see me for 20 years or more. And I'm like, wow, do I just not go back to work? When will it be safe? So it's been really hard, the mental, uh, God, just the mental exhaustion of trying to figure out reading the rules about going back to work as a massage therapist and knowing that I'm going to end in the end of August anyway. Finally, I mean, it's been a lot of um, mental jumping jacks, so to speak, but I have decided to go back to work because for, for just July and August, because I want to see these people a few more times and make sure that I have good referral uh, LMTs, massage therapists, to send them to before I quit. So I couldn't just, like, quit that way. And it was a hard decision to make, but I feel like I can do it. And um, I'll be able to say goodbye to each and every one of my clients uh, appropriately. But, yeah, that's what I've been doing as my in my um, day job for the last 20-some years.
0: That's really quite a different thing. I mean, so you went to school for years, studied
1: Well, yeah, it was criminal justice, but yeah, it wasn't law. It was, it was, I got a master's degree in criminal justice. And then I worked for the legislature and then for the last 25 years, I've been a massage therapist. Yeah. It was was a bit of a circuitous route, but it was a route nonetheless.
0: Yeah. So did you just find you had an intuitive sense Uh of healing? Yeah. Is that why you went with
1: it? Yeah. And I, it's odd. I am not quite sure that, came from I I remember when I was working for the legislature um, I remember talking to my sister and, and telling her at that time I was studying Native American religion and I was doing a lot of bead work and I had this idea that I would maybe make jewelry and she laughed at me I said I don't know I just I feel like I need to work with my hands my mother was a hard worker she worked in a factory all her life and I remember her hands were strong and um, she used her hands every day. And so somehow I felt a need to use my hands. And then um, some things were changing at the legislature. And my boss went around to speak to all of us to see what, what is your goal for the, what is your, you know, what is your future goal? And, you know, she's talking to each one of us because we might have been, we we're at a point where we might have been losing our jobs. We were moving from a, a, a nonpartisan research group to a uh, more of a a committee structure, kind of hard to explain all that. But it was a time when things were changing at the legislature. This was like in the early 90s. And I remember my boss came up to me and asked me what my goals were. And thinking about this legislative job I'm in, what comes out of my mouth was I want to be involved in healing. And as I said that, another part of me is going, what? So that was kind of like, <laughs> right. I, I think, I think I've been knowing what I wanted to do. I just hadn't been facing it until that moment. And then I took some massage classes for just the lay person through the Oregon school of massage, which at that time was only in Portland. And I remember taking those classes uh-huh. going, do I want to do this for a living? And I went, eh, I don't know, but, uh, Then I went on a vision quest. As I'd mentioned, I was was involved in trying to find myself through Native American ways. And I went on a vision quest, and it came to me. That's what I needed to do. And so I was working for the legislature, and this would have been the fall of 1993. I started massage school, and by 1995, Mm -hmm. I'd quit the legislature after nine years and got involved in my massage practice. Yeah. So another one of those getting here to That's... Oregon was kind of like I felt like out of my control, but felt like the right thing. And then getting into massage therapy was another one of those things that, wow, I don't know how I got here, but here I am and it's perfect. I do. I did. And I, and love I do it. love doing massage. And I, I also have taught massage for the last 20 years. And, um, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to miss it. Yeah, uh there's a Oregon School of Massage as well. But, you know, of course, the massage school has been shut down and we don't know when we're going to go back to that. Um, But I'm also ready to have more of my own time in my life, time to explore more nature, more hiking, more traveling. I'm looking forward to that uh, once I retire fully from teaching and my massage practice. Desert. Travel. I love desert, the desert. Ocean. For the last four September's, mm-hmm. I have gone to Eastern Oregon and just got my soul replenished.
2: All yeah, of Alboard it. Desert, I, I've been Fort to Rock. one
1: year. I was Steens Mountain and Elvor Desert. The next year, it was mm-hmm. the Canyon lands. The next year, it was Hell's Canyon, and the year after that, I explored um, Eastern Washington. Uh, I can't remember what the name of that area. Mm. It was the area caused by the Missoula floods so many thousands of years ago. Those lands. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nes Pierce area. Mm -hmm. Nes Pierce land. Yeah, that land is amazing. Uh, Just the Columbia Gorge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Columbia River Gorge. And and, and
1: just east
0: of the Columbia River Gorge where
1: the Missoula floods are are
0: phenomenal. I mean, and the The evidence is still there. I remember um, I was driving in Portland with uh, one of my bosses, and we were coming off the bank down towards the river. And as you know, and I have always imagined coming off that bank, you know, like on 122nd, we're just dropping into the River Valley there. Um, And I'm like, wow, imagine this was... Can you imagine like right here, mm-hmm. the, the the water was here and the Missoula floods flooded through and he was like, yeah. Missoula floods, what's that? And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. how this whole river valley mm-hmm. happened. This is how this all happened. And he's like, what? Mm-hmm. He's Googling while yeah, he's driving, right. you know, back in the day.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, that's, that's a phenomenal, but Bonneville,
2: mm-hmm. Lake Bonneville is pretty yeah. amazing too. That's the Grand yeah.
1: Canyons, you know. Yeah. So sometimes when I get really depressed and down about the current day situation, I kind of like, I like to imagine myself just going above all of that and just realizing that this is such a small piece and in a much bigger picture. And no matter how we screw up Mother Earth, she's still going to be here. And once I realized that, it relieved a bit of stress somehow. We may be gone,
0: yeah, but yeah, well, humans have to figure out how we can keep humans. If, right. if we still right. want to right. exist, we need to yeah. figure out some, some strategies because, you know, this isn't working. The, big, the most challenging hmm. thing, though, is, is procreation um, because more right. people means more resources means we and, and at a certain point, right? the planet really can't keep up. You know, I've seen the studies. Well, you could put a person, every person in the world could have an acre. Well, have you flown over most of the acres?
1: Uh Does that include the ocean? You know,
0: and most of them aren't. Yeah, we're talking about arable, potable, you know, arable land you can use. And we're talking about forests you can use. I mean. And and oil products that that hopefully we can get away from. But these are the resources that we Mm -hmm. have. And there's only so much here. And we can, if right. we use it all, then we're all going to be fighting because right. that's what yeah. we've always fought over is resources yeah. and power, which is right. kind of both. So if maybe you have the resources, COVID
1: you have the is the earth's answer to uh, clearing some of us out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I Should guess just the Swedes did it that, but I no. think
1: they might be rethinking <laughs> that I've heard. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did they were did they just uh, stay open? culling the herd was the philosophy that they practiced. Yeah. The sweets. I mean it's yeah, a it's a it's a it's a lot. choice. It's one option. And you know, we've been um we've closed mm-hmm. down. I mean the state the nation was closed down. Um studies have said we've been able to prevent a certain number of deaths and infections, but as we open up, we're just uh, the um, numbers are going back up again, The the um, infection rate is going back up again. So, uh, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I watched Georgia after as soon as they said they were opening up and it was April 28th. So I just started watching them and they were going up about a thousand a week. They're up about 20,000 in a month. Um, and I haven't gone back and looked at it. Um, site. So but it was just like within a month they went up twenty thousand, and and mm-hmm. we stayed I, uh, pretty low, pretty pretty low here. And I was looking at because you could actually look at it by zip codes, and it was predominantly hitting um, our, our mm-hmm. uh, Mexican communities. And you know there are several reasons for that. I would I would imagine one would be communications probably not getting out as actively yeah. in in the Hispanic communities, like they're not, they're not getting bombarded with the information we are. Um, I don't know what Telemundo was doing and, and those types of things. The other thing is but the bigger, the bigger issue is um, mm-hmm.
2: multi-generational
0: sure. family living. And you have, you know, yeah. four people leaving the house every day to work. Three people stay home all day with the babies and, and abuela, she's hanging out. And then, you know, the kids come home after work they don't feel any symptoms because they're young and, and their body's able to fight it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but grandma, yeah, that's it. it. So when you look at the zip codes, it's, uh, East Portland, like out between Gresham and East Portland out there where it's, it's really large Hispanic community, uh, Hillsboro, another large Hispanic community, East Salem
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Woodburn. Those are our big ones around here. Um, and it, I, that's, it's amazing what culture, how mm-hmm. just a cultural thing can impact, sure. you know, multigenerational living.
1: And the type of for that community it's a combination of people who are farm workers. It's been very difficult for them to social distance and have the right sanitizing um, materials available to them. And uh, just the need to work. Um, not being able to have the luxury of staying home if you felt like uh, it was, it was not good to go to work. So yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot of reasons.
0: No, you have to work. You have to pay the rent. You have to buy the food. You have to Mm -hmm. send your remittances home because people are depending on you. So
1: I, I I know that that's being studied. That's being looked at. Uh, I know that radio Poder has been a, a real resource for the public health agencies to get information out to their people that, that it's an all Spanish speaking radio station has a couple of indigenous languages programs too. Um, but yeah, it's really hard because people are living close together and they have jobs where it's hard to social distance. I mean, the meat packing companies is another big example of uh, where large groups of people congregate yeah. and they are in an essential service. So they have to go to work. Right,
0: you know they'll work twelve hours a day and go home to a house with ten people in it because they're just trying to pay Mm -hmm. rent. You know, split it up, and yeah, that's you know we lived across the street from a house that you know was immigrant labor, and and there were times when Mm -hmm. there be you know it's a little bitty house, maybe not even a thousand square feet. And there'd be time when there would be, you know, 15 people in that house, but they wouldn't all be there ever. You know, there was, they're always coming and going. A a different different lifestyle than what
1: we're used to, Gary.
0: Mm. I kind of grew up with a lot of that. I grew up in the Central Valley of California. It was around Mm -hmm. us a lot. We picked growing up. Uh, David was a baby, so I would, I would pick, mom Mm. would pick and I would run the buckets back and forth. You know, and get get they give you a chit, a little piece of paper, say how much your stuff weighed, and I'd give that to my mom and haul the next bucket. Um, but yeah, we grew up in that environment, and it was good, you know. The outside <laughs> works hard, though. You you really work hard.